This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. Hi, everyone. This is Martin Willis, your host. Today's podcast is quite different from anyone that I've ever had before. It's behind-the-scenes look at an auction I did in 1989. It was definitely the auction of my career. It was of the second signer of the Declaration of Independence, all his artifacts out of his Kingston, New Hampshire home, who Josiah Bartlett was. Um, He was born in Amesbury, Massachusetts. That's where I did the lecture. Um, He studied science and medicine. Uh, He became a physician at a young age. He moved to Kingston, New Hampshire. His original homestead was burnt in 1774 by loyalists to the crown. He rebuilt his mansion, which stands today, and it's still in the very same family. That's what made it so exciting. All his artifacts and everything were in that home when I came to look at it back in 1989. Um, He was also the first governor of New Hampshire. He was a member of the Committee of Safety. He was the founder of the New Hampshire Medical Society. He continued to serve in 1777, and he participated in the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, and he later joined the Federal Constitutional Convention in 1787, and he died in 1795, one of the founding fathers of the country. It was a real exciting auction, and now you get to hear behind the scenes of it, and here is the lecture that I did in Amesbury, Massachusetts on the 22nd of October. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's, it's a real pleasure to talk about Josiah Barlett and how that particular auction totally changed my life. Well, I started young in the auction business. I was, when the first time I did, sold anything at auction was a birdcage for $2 at age 15. <laughs> and, and I remember running the numbers backwards. I think I sold it for like $2, but that was the time when you were taking 50-cent bids. You know, I mean, lots changed since then. I would say, in a nutshell... The way I landed the Bartlett auction was I was called by the family um, at the Kingston house to come take a look at miscellaneous. They didn't want to sell any of their expensive items. They wanted to sell things in their attic, and just they were dividing up things between the family. And so they called me in, and uh, I looked around, and my breath was gone. You know, I just went, oh, my God, like that. And I tried to, you know, you always try to focus in this business on what the people want, and you always have to be sensitive to um, the emotions of attachment and all that. But I just walked through the house. I tried to say to myself, okay, okay, okay. I'm just getting the stuff. I'm getting just the stuff. So I went up. I went up, uh, and most of the stuff I was getting from them was uh, out of their attic. So I, I, I was blessed with an amazing crew that worked with me. Everybody loved them. They were real friendly. And so we had a good time carrying things out of the attic. I remember dropping things down on the porch below and everything. Well, they came to the auction, and they had a wonderful time. There were smiles on their face the whole time. Now, you can never say to anyone in this auction business that if I sell the lesser stuff, then I can sell the better stuff because it's apples and oranges. The the low-end stuff sells for low-end prices no matter what. So anytime I get that type of call, I I just tell the people, it's two different things we're talking about here. So... Luckily, though, they enjoyed their time. Um, they had a, a wonderful time. Even sent me a note afterwards um, that they loved the, the job I did. Well, time came around when they were deciding to sell all the expensive stuff, and they were considering three auction houses. One was sort of local, and the other two were the ones in New York. 
So I got a call, and they said, we'd like for you to come over. And so between Janet and Ruth, um, I remember as I was leaving, they said, we really like you, and we really like the way you handled our lesser stuff. We trust you. And because I sold the lesser stuff, I got the auction of a lifetime. And I remember driving, this was before cell phones, driving home um, and calling my wife from a store or something, a pay phone. You'll never believe it. I was just like so, so excited. But I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I was 31 or 31 or 2 at the time. I would come back like on a daily basis. Now, there's always struggles when something like this happens. And once the word got out that I had the auction, I had a signed contract, another auctioneer sent them a letter saying, offered their money to break the contract with me, and uh, also offered to cut my commission, whatever it was, in half. I hold it to their credit that they didn't drop me. They showed me the letter. They wouldn't let me copy it. One thing my father drilled in my head, my father has a lot of influence in the way I've done business over the years. He said, never, ever cut your commission. Just don't. People think less of you. Don't do it. So they, they worked on me, and they worked on me, and they worked on me to cut my commission. And I, stay, I stayed fast. I said, nope, I'm not going to cut my commission. But then they wanted a couple of reserves on items. And I had already advertised it. It's, you can see it in the brochure right there, no reserves, which means no minimums. Instead, I says, what I'm going to do instead, I'll give you a guarantee. And luckily, I, I got really lucky. And uh, because it, those, those two items, one was the, um, the high, high Boy, which is this piece right here, which now sits in the state of New Hampshire. Um, so there were, that they wanted $100,000 for, and it landed right on the money. And I, uh, the state of New Hampshire did buy that. I had no idea what they were going to spend for it, but the underbidder went up to 95000 or so. The preparation for this auction was a monumental task I, because here I am, 31. I have, sure, I've been at it for, you know, 16 years or whatever, but there's so much more to learn. And I'm actually learning still every day, you know, and that's one of the things I really, really love about this business. I've always loved history, and and when I say this is luck, this auction was luck, I do believe it's luck, and then luck rolls into another thing and another thing. I'm not saying it's all luck, but I'd rather be lucky than good, as they say. You know, and I've had the opportunity to handle many more things that are pretty exciting because of this auction. It all based from this one auction and the integrity that gave me. I got to go in this house, and there's a video online. You can see it. If you type in on YouTube, Josiah Bartlett Auction, it'll come up, and it'll show you there's a, there's a panning of uh, the rooms in there, and you can see what I had to go through in the, in the months that I had to work to put this together. Every single item I tried to research. I was there day after day. And then I decided I wanted to find out who made the furniture. And I was determined to find out who made the furniture. <coughs> so uh, for weeks on end, I'd go up to the state in the archives and look at the Josiah Bart- Bartlett papers. I have the books here. This was actually Frank Meavers who, who wrote that. Real nice guy. So I went up there searching through all his ledgers, all his papers that I could to try to find an invoice for the furniture. I just Knew for sure I'd find it, but I didn't. But, um, but what I did find was, uh, you know, his account of everyday life, and it just totally fascinated me. And all the times that it seemed like every other day he was doing a tooth extraction, every other day he was bleeding someone, um, you know, that's just what they did back then. And when you look at the apothecary chest in his house, uh, one of the drawers was full of lead pills, 
And I think I read somewhere when I was researching it that or some people in science and medicine knew about lead pills uh, were not so good for you. But they were prescribing them until I think it was like 1840s. They were still giving lead pills. So kind of like what some of the drug companies do today, if you ask me. <laughs> that's, that's my own opinion. But in the preparation for this, I had no idea what to expect. And in the crowd, we have one descendant right here. I started hearing from people all over the country. Once Associated Pre uh, AP got a hold of the story, a story was broke to them that the state of New Hampshire secretly appropriated a million dollars to bid at the auction to, mm -hmm. to make sure that things didn't get out of state. Um, someone broke that story, and I didn't have to advertise anymore. That was it. It was in the papers repeatedly. There was things on TV about it. I don't need to get into so much of the background work, but it's a, people don't realize how much work an auction is. It's a lot, a lot of work. And if you want to do the job right, yes? Where was it and when was it? Oh, yes. It was in Kingston, New Hampshire, okay. and it was June 24, 1989. So I figured out I'm going to do something that a New York place would not do, and I'm going to do that auction on location. And I thought this is the way to get all the money for the items you have here is to sell the items right where they lived. And a New York house would have gone in there and plucked a couple of items out of there and brought it to New York and it would have lost that whole connection. The papers were incredible. Uh, I can't remember, I, all out of catalogs. I had a specialist come in and work with the papers and he kept, every day he was working on them, he'd go, oh my goodness, he just couldn't believe what he was finding. You know, we found some oaths that people took Basically, kind of like a declaration, you know, is like a death oath if, uh, if they failed. Um, and Josiah Bartlett's uh, book when he was in school, uh, the charter book for the Medical Society, he was the founder of the, the New Hampshire Medical Society, that went for $14,000 that day, and it was just a little book, you know, this big. Um, the papers were one of my favorite parts, just to read through them and for me, I, I have this thing where I love to touch like a George Washington letter or Abraham Lincoln letter and just think, wow, this founding father, not Lincoln, but actually wrote this, held this in his hand, and this came out of his mind when he was writing. To me, there's, there's really something about that. I, I really love that connection. And uh, I get excited every time I see something early, uh, like uh, one of the founding fathers. I, I uh, transcribed a... For my friend here, John McGinnis here in town, probably you people know who he is. Um, we're good friends, and I transcribed a George Washington letter, six-page letter, about a math book, um, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. I had to use the dictionary about 20 times to understand the words that George Washington was using, and I want to say out of those six pages, it was not one single misspelled word, and that's an educated farmer right there. So the day gets closer. Um, the story goes around the globe. This is before the internet. And I was getting calls in the middle of the night from other countries, you know, and, and so the auction was getting closer and closer. And I, I didn't think I, I could handle it. My father said to me the day of the auction, he says, you stay home until just before the auction. And that was the best thing you could ever did. I was relaxed. I was ready to go. And it was a wonderful day. I got a call from um, Donald Trump was trying to land his helicopter. Never made it. It was a very foggy day that day. I heard the helicopter. I was talking on the phone to his pilot. They turned around and 
went somewhere else. Often wondered if it was a gag someone was trying to pull on me. But I heard the, I heard the chopper on the phone. I heard the chopper in the air. So I think it was air, <laughs> air and all. The day of the auction, it was, it was like magic. Uh, if I held it up, it would sell. I remember as a joke, I took a board with a couple of nails on it from the barn, and I held it up, and it sold for $65. The, the people were in the thousands. I don't know exactly how many. And I ran two auctions at one time because there were so many items that I had to sell. I sold all the important things. And then I jumped over and I sold the, the papers. And um, to me, that was my favorite part. And what was happening that day, and if you ever attend an auction, don't do this. There's a thing that we call the Statue of Liberty bid. And that's when someone is bidding like that. They'll just bid like that. How many people here have gone to auctions? It's quite a few of you. So when you bid, you know, you should go like, like that, you know. But you don't go like this, right? So the state of New Hampshire was going like this. All these people that didn't want the state of New Hampshire to own things were watching them and bidding them up. So they probably paid at least $100,000 more than they had to. Sorry about that. Um, it was really exciting. The... I, the night before the auction, I had walked around with Ruth Reddy and Janet Donahue, and I said, uh, I want you to go around with me, and we're going to point at things, and I want you to tell me what you think these pieces will sell for. So they did, and so I wrote down everything they sold for, and most of the things that they said were in the 10 times. Like, for instance, the apothecary chest went for $88,000. They thought it was going to sell for around five or $7,000, and and by the way, the person that bought that apothecary chest for $88,000 never sold, he couldn't sell that thing. And I thought that was one of the best things in the house because it had handwritten labels, the doctor's labels written on all the, the drawers. But I ran into a person that partnered with him, David Schorsch. Does anyone know that name? He's one of the big folk art dealers in the country. And he said that uh, they, they sold it at a, almost a $20,000 loss. So there was magic that day. Things just went out of sight. The little uh, tea table that um, he worked a lot of his medicine on, um, they were offered a great deal of money for that at one time. And I turned it upside down in the house and I noticed a, a line on it all the way around the border. And right off the bat, I said that shouldn't be there. And what it was, it was a loss of oxidation, which means that there was something there at one time. And that's when I realized that the tea table used to have a fitted top. It didn't have the plank top. And I'll show you what the table I'm talking about. This is an old postcard of Josiah Bartlett right here. And see that table right there? That table would have a top that was fitted right around the edge and didn't have this plank top. So when it was about five years old, that's what we're guessing, um, he replaced the top so he could use it as a work surface. So that, anytime you do that to an antique, you know, you've watched the Antiques Roadshow, right? Way down. So it went from probably a $100,000 table. I think it sold for thirty-seven-five. So that was the only disappointment in the, the whole day of the auction. And uh, it was exciting. And the one thing that happened that I got to say you would never believe is I, I had a very active and busy uh, auction house, and it was in Elliott, Maine at the time. And I, I just was on the run, on the run, on the run. And I would sell mid-level, and then I was starting to sell a little better items. And every auctioneer strives to try to sell better items. That's what we do. And so I had the Bartlett auction. It was like someone cut my phone lines. All of a sudden, all the people that were calling me for the mediocre states 
thought that all I wanted was a high-end estates. And so I had a couple more really big auctions that year. And then um, the next year, my auction level dropped drastically. So I went through a hard financial time, and it's hard to believe that I had such a, a banner year where I, I thought the money would never stop flowing in to the next year that was, uh, that was tough. So it's a real quirky business, but I still love it. And I love every day that I'm out there and learning something new, and that's what it's all about. Did you have family descendants at the auction? 54. Yeah, so I'll take questions. Yes, sir. Yeah. You obviously, in the course of a day, get to see you know, a wide variety of things. What do you consider yourself to be a specialist in, or are you a generalist? I am a generalist, and we're a rare breed today. The, what's happening is, uh, and happened in the antique business <coughs> is that most people are specializing, and um, there are fewer and fewer uh, generalists out there. I was contacted by a big appraisal firm that they said, well, it's really hard to find generalists. Will you do some appraisal work for us? Because it, they're just hard to find. Um, I have loves, as you can probably tell when I talk about the documents and papers. I really have a love for that type of thing. Uh, artwork is another passion of mine. And then I've kind of gone in and out of collecting different things. So I try to learn, I try to learn the mystery pieces. And there's still a lot of them. Anyone else? Yes. When you mentioned Mrs. Ray, was she the great, 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 great something granddaughter? Or Five down. Five down? Yeah. Did they, did they stay in the house or did they move Yes, the house? that was the reason for the auction. She wanted to stay in the house. And the Janet Donahue from New York wanted her part of the estate. So that's the reason the, the pieces were sold. Now, there was a lot of things left in there. Um, and Ruth Reddy is still around, and she's hanging on to it, as far as I know. I should knock on her door sometime, though. <laughs> you have a picture of it on the um, brochure. How much did the vest that you The vest, to... if I recall right, sold for about $16,000. And the vest, the vest was he supposedly wore that when he signed the declaration. <laughs> and the thing, when I quote, quote these numbers, they don't sound like a lot of money today. Um, that's the vest right there. That's his walking stick. This is just a, a piece I put in there for accent. This, uh, i got to tell you, um, this is the, the chair again. This watch right here, I found an account um, of Levi. And by the way, Levi was his favorite son. He had 12 kids to begin with. Some didn't make it past infancy. But I read the letters of him talking about Levi. He adored Levi. And so Levi wrote the account of this Watch right here. In 1774, Josiah Bartlett's house was burned down by loyalists. And they grabbed some things out of the house. And one of them is a very beautiful uh, tall case clock, what people know as a grandfather clock, uh, made in Newburyport by David Wood. Um, that clock has to stay in the house. It's written from Josiah Bartlett himself that that clock is never to be sold out of the house. So Josiah uh, carried that clock outside during the fire. And so it survived the fire. When he got up the next morning, this watch was hanging from it. Because what they did back then, these watches, um, only you had to wind them every day. But a, a tall clock would run for 30 days or whatever the days it is. So you'd set your clock every morning. You'd go to your tall case clock and you'd set your clock time every morning by that tall case clock. And so this was hanging on the, on the clock and it survived and I got to sell it. That was, that was about sixteen or $18,000 for the clock. 
This was his tankard. It had pinprick initials on it. And that was bought by a gentleman that was a major pewter collector that went to uh, Rhode Island. And I can't remember what that sold for. And this, this is a kind of a funny story. See this card table? It's a Portsmouth card table. Uh, very desirable. I had a, a major, at the time, antique celebrity had a nationwide column. Um, he came in and looked at the table right in front of the people. He said, that's brand new. So I told him, shh, 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 no, it's not, no, it's not. And it looked brand new because it never moved. It was brought into that house maybe when they painted the floors, or did wallpaper, they moved it. But, I mean, it was just in perfect condition. That sold for 28000 I think it was, at the time, which was, I, I think it was a record at the time for that type of, um, that type of table. This was also a record at 100000 at the time for a New Hampshire high boy. So every once in a while, I'll get, I'll get uh, contacted by people that own one of these pieces. And what I did is if you, see, it's not in here, but I made little labels that actually said bought at the Josiah Bartlett auction, and occasionally they'll pop up on the Internet so that people still own them. So there must be more questions. Any other questions? Yes? At, at a high-end auction, and I'm sure there's a lot of variety in this, but at a high-end auction, what, what percentage of bidders would you say buying for their own collection and retention as opposed to resale, as opposed to perhaps a, a mid-range auction where there might be more people who are professionally buying hmm. for resale? That's a real tough question to, to answer. I think it's it varies all the time. But um, I a lot of times we see things go at auction where we say that there is, that's past retail. It has to be a, a, someone that it's one or two things. There's someone that has a customer in mind. They know that just say, buy it. Or it's someone that is a, a dealer, for instance, that wants to buy for their own collection, so they'll go to the moon for it. You know? And uh, I can go into a long discourse about that whole, you know, the auction business today. It really has changed. Um, some of these period pieces of furniture that I show you here are um, worth a fraction, worth a fraction. Uh, one of the things I thought was really cool is see these pictures. I found these photos in 1920, is it? Uh, 1925, and that's Levi Bartlett, the grandson of Josiah Bartlett. Uh, I just thought that was really great. Um, yeah, a lot of that period furniture today, for instance, if that high boy went on the market, it might be 20000 if it didn't have... Uh, at the time, it wasn't... I would say it was probably worth 75000 if it wasn't tied to the sign of the declaration because one sold very similar for about eighty at the time. Um, but in today's world, that's maybe a $25,000 auction, uh, auction item. Um, so there are – it's kind of discouraging. And a lot of times when I do these appraisal clinics to tell people what things are really worth today. Um, but also, you can have something in three or four different auctions, and it's going to bring three or four different prices. You just – it's – really tough as an appraiser to put a number on an item today. Yes? So when we watch the antiques roadshow, they'll say, oh, you know, um, this is just so beautiful, but 10 years ago you would have gotten twice yes. mm-hmm. yeah. So what is the big, you know, big number thing now that's going on? Or, um, well, there's probably a few people that can answer it right in this crowd, right? Anyone want to take a guess at that? Art's going pretty good, but it has to be at a certain level. It's the high-end items. The high-end items are bringing all the money today, and also Asian arts, 
but mostly Chinese. The Chinese porcelains. There's there's seven thousand billionaires in Shanghai, and you know there's uh, China's wealth is growing really fast. So they're trying to repatriate. They're they're bringing back a lot of their items, but they're also they're they're spending crazy money. But they're not spending crazy money on everything. They're spending crazy money on the the better of the things. And and Julia's auction. I've been with Julius about a year and a half now. We sold a little Buddha um, for four hundred sixty thousand dollars that had a um, estimate of three to four thousand on it. This was our last auction. Um, we sold a Korean screen the year before for six hundred fifty thousand. So that that type of thing is, you know, if it's really rare and good, that's what's selling for the big money today. I personally collected artwork in the three to five to six thousand dollar range, ten at the best, and my collection's worth a fraction. You know, so I like it, and that's what I tell people all the time. Uh, don't buy anything for investment unless you love it, because you might be living with it. How about weapons or antique weapons? Yes, uh, James Julia actually is the number one auction house in the entire world that I work for. We just had a $17 million auction um, last week on firearms. Second largest auction. We had the first largest auction, but that's the second largest auction in history of firearms. So we're the place for firearms. See, yeah. <laughs> he was so afraid to bring it. You know, my office is in Warburg. Yeah. I can't take them in. I have to shy away from them because the laws are so yeah, yeah, so tough here. Now, you get after 1898, I think it is, or 1894, 1894, a whole different story. I mean, prior to 1894. Anyone else have a question? Yes. Do you come across a lot of that's a really good question. Thanks for asking that. Because if anyone ever decides to listen to my podcast, you'll hear almost every show I talk about that because that that is the biggest beef I have in this business is the, well, there's some real characters in this business that try to pull things off. But um, the fakes um, and reproductions, I despise because they hurt us in so many different ways. And the worst part about a fake or a reproduction that is well, more or less a fake, is that someone may want to come into the business. We need people in the business that collect. Someone may come into the business, think they know what they're doing, they buy a fake, a reproduction, then they realize they make a big mistake, they're gone. That's the one thing that stopped them right there, stopped them in their tracks. So that's how they hurt the business. There are people making tons of money by selling fakes, and they're just looking at the short range. You know, It hurts everybody. Anyone else? It doesn't have to be just about the auction, the auction business or anything. Any other questions? Did, did the descendants who had the auction primarily keep the money then for their own use, or did they donate it to a foundation? Or it was totally for the property separation. Okay. So um, instead of the woman that inherited half of it in New York Instead of her like forcing the sale of everything, mm-hmm. she settled for a fraction of it and let the other descendant keep the house. Mm-hmm. So it was fairly do- it was done in a fair way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you ever get people say from the Smithsonian like if they know that you have the um, the, the papers from Josiah Bartlett, he must have written to Washington. Yeah, they were there. They were at the so auction. They were there and they yeah. Were, yeah. Yeah. And. Those are gone. They're gone. That's right. 
That's right, and you never know. It, it's really it always amazes me how things scatter in this business. They just go everywhere, and you can never retrieve them. Sometimes, although I got some great stories about that, how things have been found. Um, I wanted to know after they sold all the items to the state of New Hampshire, where did they then put all of those things? They're in the governor's mansion, I think. I think that's where the high boy is, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Is that what you mean, or the papers? <coughs> Into some historical society collection? Or? Yes. Yep. The papers went to the historical society. The high boy, I believe, was the only piece of furniture they bought, and that, that went to the governor's mansion. And it's on display there. So one can go and, 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 and view those things. As, and far as, a, as far as the papers go, you, I don't know if any of you are familiar with museums and things, but a lot of times it just goes into their archives in their basement, and you never see the light of day. You know, at least they're preserved. And but that's the thing. If you're if you ever want to donate to a museum, you have no control about what they do with it. They can sell it too. I mean, that happens all the time. We sell things for museums. So, um, you know, unless you request something written out, but a lot of times they just they sell them and they need money, so they're doing that. I have a personal question. My my son-in-law in New York. Father was a coin collector and collected antiquities that went to the Romans and the Greek era and all that. And he has passed away, and they don't know what to do with it now. I mean, they don't know their. They have one child who's just a little guy. Um, where would they go for all of this in New York? Oh, they're in New York. They're in New York. Well, it's a good place to be because there's specialists in in antiquities in New York at any of the major auction houses down there. So, I mean, would you recommend that they? Donate them to some, I don't know, museum or... Real, whatever, whatever their needs are, if they need a tax write-off, um, that could be a good choice. But you never know what's going to happen when you donate. It's just the truth of it. You know, unless it's something really, really major and you can request that it's on display. But otherwise, you're at the whim. Yeah. Do you ever have the need to call in particular specialists to um, appraise an item? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the one thing. It's so vast the field. That's, that's the one thing, no matter what you know, there's someone that knows it better. Yeah. And um, the, I, my father always told me to do that when you need to. And um, did, has anyone been in the antique business here? Um, did you ever hear the name Billy Graham here in Amesbury? He was in a Billy Graham. He was an amazing uh, book of knowledge in the antiques. He was a walking encyclopedia, knew all the early, early stuff. Um, and I, it just came to mind when you mentioned that. I brought him into the Bartlow estate when I first got it, just to you know, make sure things were what, what I thought they were. Uh, brilliant. And yes, uh, uh, Julia's up in Maine. We're up in Fairfield, Maine. Does anyone even know where that is? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you have? Yeah. And um, they spare no expense on getting uh, experts in when they need it. They really make sure they have the right person in. So, and it's a smart choice because you can make, just like someone running their own estate sale, you can make a, a big mistake. The only thing is, is when you're having an auction, generally if you make a mistake, it, it uh, shows up in money. Like, for instance, Christie's made a terrible mistake. I don't know if anyone saw the Nova show on the Da Vinci. Uh, did you see that? 
Yeah, I actually did a recording with the guy that, um, uh, a podcast with the guy that um, did the work on that. Um, Christie sold to Da Vinci for um, $20,000, calling it a German 19th century uh, portrait. And uh, they also sold another major auction house down there, had um, uh, a Chinese piece estimated at um, fifteen dollars to $2,000 that sold for $16 million. So we all make mistakes. There's not one single auction house that doesn't make a mistake. And that's why people go to auctions, because they think someone's going to make a mistake. And I've bought mistakes at auctions and done pretty well, actually, a couple times. So that can happen. Yeah? Are you one of those auctioneers who can talk really fast? Well, I learned that. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. I learned in, um, I learned in Kansas City... This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.